So as we jump into F260 this morning, I want us to take a look at the story found in John 13. And we're gonna walk through the whole story, but there really is one overarching idea that I want you to grab this morning as we go through this. This is what, if you catch nothing else, zero in on this one thing. It's the full extent of Christ's love. The full extent of Christ's love. John 13, verse one, starts with this. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now it says he loved them to the very end. I accidentally deleted that on the slide because I wanted you to see this other interpretation as well. Some versions say he showed them the full extent of his love. He loved them to the very end, or he showed them the full extent of his love. Think about this. Christ has been walking with his disciples for three years doing ministry. In that time, he's had daily countless opportunities to teach them with his words, by example, and he has shown them his love over and over and over. And now, we're walking into this section of the Gospel of John where Jesus realizes, well, not realizes, he knows, has known, but he is on his way out physically at this point from earth. He's getting ready to leave his disciples. And so there begins this, this passage where it's basically Jesus' farewell to his disciples. And the only way I know to, to compare that or interpret it would be like if I was told today that I was going to die tomorrow, what would be important to me? What would I want to say to my family? What would I want them to hear or grasp? And, and my life is very different from Jesus. He's been teaching this and living this for three years very clearly in front of them Quite honestly, there's probably some things I'd want to say to my family that I haven't lived out real well. But Jesus has lived this perfectly in front of them for three years, and now he has this opportunity to share. Here's the thing that is most important. Here's what I want you to get. If you've heard nothing else, if you haven't seen anything else, if you haven't experienced anything else, this is what matters most. Get this. That's the setup for this encounter this morning. Don't take it lightly, because this is serious stuff. I want us to go back and just read the beginning of this chapter. We're going to read verses 1 through 17. The chapter is quite a bit longer than that, but it'll give you the heart of what we're talking about today. And then we're going to come back and dig a little deeper into some of the specific verses and things that are said. So John chapter 13, starting at verse 1, going through verse 17. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. We just read that. It was time for supper, and the devil had prompt, already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never, ever wash my feet. And Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and head as well, Lord, not just my feet. And Jesus replied, a person who's bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him, and that is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. 
I tell you the truth, slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Now let's go back and I want to walk through a few things that we see in here. Verse 2 points out very clearly that Judas has already decided to betray Jesus. That's really important. And I'm going to come back and spend some time on that, but for right now, what I want you to do is just kind of set that aside. You might have heard the expression, put a pen in it. Just kind of file that off to the side, hold on to it. We're coming back to it, but not right now. I want to keep going. Verse 3 reminds us of who Jesus is. It reminds us that he fully understands his purpose here on earth. He's the master at the table. But not only is he the master over the disciples or the master over that meal, he is the master of all creation. And he's been showing this and proving this on multiple occasions throughout his ministry. Think about it. He's proven that he's the master over the wind and waves. He calmed the sea. You remember that? He's the master over all vegetation. You remember the fig tree that he cursed? He's the master over that. He's the master over the human body. He's been healing people and bringing dead people back to life and, and bringing healing to those who are sick. He's the master over the human body. He's even master over the demons, over the evil spirits. You remember the encounters time after time where they know who he is, they recognize him, he calls them by name and casts them out. He's master over all of it. And his disciples have witnessed all of these things and they know it to be true from firsthand experience. But what I find interesting is Jesus doesn't say any of that here. He doesn't say anything about his power or his position. It's just John, the author of the book, who's reminding us of these things. He's telling us this is who Jesus is. This is his position. This is the power that he wields. He knows who he is. This is his identity. And it's kind of like he's setting the stage for us. Jesus knew who he was. He knew what his purpose was. And then verse 4 starts with this phrase. So he. Interesting use of words. He knew what his purpose was. He knew his identity. He knew he was master over everything. So he, and it goes on into the rest of the story about how he washed his disciples' feet. Because Jesus knew who he truly was, he chose to act accordingly. Now, I'm, I'm going to jump the gun just a little bit here, but I don't want you to miss this really important thing. If you skip down to verse 15, Jesus makes this statement. He says, I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Now think about this. Step back and look at the story from a distance. You see that because Jesus truly loved his disciples with the full extent of his love to the very end, it tells us, and because he was confident in his identity and his purpose, who he was, he chose to take action to model what he saw as the most important thing that his disciples needed to walk away with. This is what, if they didn't get anything else, they needed to grasp this. He washed their feet. He took the position of a lowly servant and he washed the feet of the men that he was master over. And I don't want you to look at that lightly because there's more significance here to what Jesus did than I think you or I could ever possibly understand because we don't live in that culture. We don't understand that. We don't grasp it. We don't wash our feet when we come into a building. We don't think about that. Even when we go barefoot, we don't wash our feet. It's just not something that's thought of. Trust me, my kids never put shoes on and their feet are always black. No, no question. They're always dirty, but they don't think about it. I'm constantly on them. We have cream couches. Get off the couch with those nasty feet. It's just not something we think about today, right? But this was common practice. They would go and they would take a ritual bath. They were clean all over, but they'd walk on a dusty road. Their feet are nasty. And every time they would come into someone's home out of a show of respect, they would wash their feet. But typically, 
they'd wash their own feet. In fact, one of the things that I don't think we understand or realize is that it wasn't actually a norm for somebody else to wash your feet. Only those who were extremely wealthy or extremely important had a servant who would actually wash your feet. That was something that was done by a person who even most slaves weren't required to do. It wasn't the normal thing. This was lower than a typical servant in a house to wash the feet. And now Jesus, the King of all kings, Lord of all lords, master of all creation, master over all the universe, stoops, removes his robe, humbles himself, puts himself in the position of the lowliest slave and washes the feet of his followers, of his disciples. And when you think about it like that, it's no wonder that Peter reacted the way he did. I mean, I can't speak for you, but it's hard for me to let somebody serve me. I don't like to do that. I'm very independent. I like to do things on my own. My family's been yelling at me for three weeks after I had surgery. I'd get up off the couch to go do something. What are you doing? You're not supposed to be up. You're not supposed to be picking anything up. You're not supposed to be doing anything. That's hard. I'm used to doing things for myself. I like to do things for myself, and I don't like to humble myself to let somebody else serve me. And I think Peter's kind of showed us he's similar in that, maybe even a little bit stubborn like I am. And think about it. Now Jesus, the Messiah, his master, his teacher, is going to serve him in a role of one of the lowest of slaves. This is like lower than low, as low as you can get. How can he let this happen? So what's Peter do? He tells Jesus what he can and cannot do. Think about that just a second. Peter tells Jesus what he can and can't do. No, you will never, ever wash my feet. It's a really strong, bold statement. Never, ever will you wash my feet. He's telling Jesus who he has proclaimed to be God, the Son of God, the Messiah. Really, Peter? Wow. But I wonder, how often do we try to tell Jesus in a similar way? Maybe not so bold. Maybe we don't say that, no, you will never, ever fill in the blank, whatever it is. But in our words, in our actions, in our prayers, How often do we live our lives in such a way or pray in such a way that it's really no different? We're telling Jesus, do it my way instead of submitting ourselves to his way, his plan. See, Jesus, he's a lot nicer than I am. He shows compassion and understanding to Peter. And he explains to Peter, unless you allow me to wash your feet, you'll never belong to me. So Peter reacts to the other extreme then, and that's kind of how Peter is. You see him go from extreme to extreme to extreme, right? So first it's, no, you will never ever wash my feet. Now it's, okay, Jesus, give me a whole bath. If that's what it takes for me to belong to you, bathe me. Wash me from head to toe. Wash everything, because I want to belong. And I can just picture Jesus in this moment having one of those smack my head kinds of moments going, Peter, are you ever going to get it? Peter, will you ever understand? You go from one extreme to the other, and you missed the point. He patiently explains yet again. And there's this really profound teaching that happens in these couple of verses, and I'm not going to dig into this in detail. I've done this before. You've probably heard it. But I would encourage you to go back and study. He talks about the difference of being washed, washing the whole body, being cleansed, and it's a picture of salvation. 
And then he talks about the difference in washing the feet, which is this picture of purification or constant ongoing cleansing that we need. It's a picture of confession that happens. But here's what I want you to see. And this is another one of those follow to the side kind of points we're gonna come back to. Look at what Jesus said to Peter in verse 10. A person who is bathed all over doesn't need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. Listen to this. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. And that's what he meant when he said not all of you are clean. Now again, just hold on to that. We're gonna be back here in just a minute. Jesus wraps up this object lesson kind of moment as he's washing the, the disciples' feet, as he's modeling this. And he asks them, do you understand what I've just done? And I kind of find humor in this because it's like Jesus already knows. They don't get it. He asked the question, do you understand what I've done? But he doesn't even wait for anybody to answer. It's like, I'm not gonna let Peter stick his nose in here again because he's gonna say something stupid. I'm just gonna tell you what I've done. Let me keep going. And so he keeps explaining. Verse 13, he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right because that's what I am. Again, he's showing who he is. This is his identity. He's the teacher, he's the Lord, he's the master at the table. He's making sure that they recognize it. And you gotta remember, the disciples know that everything that just happened, them having their feet washed by Jesus, this is upside down. This is not normal. This is not how it should go. They realize that, and he's saying, you're right. It's upside down. It's not right. I shouldn't normally be the one washing your feet. But then he drops this bombshell on them, verses 14 and 15. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. He says, I've just shown you how to love each other fully, to give the full extent of your love. Now go and do it. And it's kind of like he's saying, don't just sit here and think, man, that's really profound, Jesus, good word. How many times do we do that? Somebody gets up to speak and they say something and it's impactful, man, Awesome, good word, and then we do nothing with it. We walk out and go about life as normal. He's saying, no, put it into practice. Make it part of your life. Go and do this. And I don't want you to misunderstand Jesus' teaching here because the truth of the matter is this isn't about feet. It isn't about a bath. Some of you are going, thank God, it's not about feet. I hate feet. This is not about feet. It's not about a bath. It's not about personal hygiene in any way. This is about the position that Jesus took when he humbled himself to serve his disciples He's telling them, this is the model you have to follow to be like me. And the same is true for you and me. If we are truly to be disciples of Christ, we must humble ourselves more and more and more and more. Until serving others from a position of complete humility becomes normal and natural. Until we find joy in serving with absolutely no recognition more than we find joy in receiving the praise and accolades of other people. Until being a humble servant is truly who we are rather than something that we simply strive to do. Let that resonate just a sec. If we're truly to be disciples of Christ, we must humble ourselves until being a humble servant is truly who we are. It becomes our identity rather than something we do. See, serving from a position of humility is how we express the love that's overflowing from our hearts when we're walking in communion with Christ. And you read about that this week. If you're not overflowing with the natural love of Christ, you might want to ask yourself the question, what is my relationship really like? How is my relationship with Christ? What's it look like? The true vine that we read about in chapter 15, and I hope you're reading all of this in F260, staying on top of it, because it's saying a lot. 
It talks about being connected to the vine, prayer and study of God's word, understanding what he's teaching us, putting it into practice, being obedient to it, worshiping, spending that time, walking in relationship with Christ. That's how we stay connected. That's how we get to a point that that love will overflow from us naturally. And when you're really connected to Christ, the fruit of your life is going to reflect it. It'll reflect it. But when you're not, you're just putting on a show. You're just putting on a show. And at some point, the curtain will drop and you'll be exposed. And see, that's what happened to Judas. It really is something different that I saw when I went through this passage this week that I've read over and over and over, and I'm sure you've had the same experience where you, you read a passage, you read a passage, you read a passage, and you get these little things, but one day it's like you, you read it and your eyes are open to something new. And I went, wow, the curtain was dropped for Judas. See, I ask you to file these little statements away, but think about this. You can pull them back out now. Verse 2, where we're told the devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. Verses 10 and 11 of this chapter, Jesus says that the disciples are clean, but not all of them. Wait a minute, we're talking about one of Jesus' disciples, right? I mean, this is a guy that Jesus called, who's been walking with him for three years, doing ministry with him, involved in all of these things. He's one of the 12. But is he really? See, dig a little deeper into the story, and you find that there's breadcrumbs all along the way. Go back a chapter to John 12, and this wasn't in our reading, but maybe you're an overachiever and you read this anyway, hopefully. If not, you probably have heard this story at some point. It's the story where Jesus goes into the house of Lazarus with Mary and Martha, and Mary, Lazarus' sister, anoints Jesus' feet with the very expensive perfume, and it says that she wipes his feet with her hair. Her tears are overflowing onto his feet. It is a special time. But here's what I want you to see. Look at John chapter 12, verses 4 and 6 that tells us more of the story. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, again, telling us these things, said that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief, and since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Hmm. Judas is identified as a thief, as being unconcerned for the poor. Neither very becoming of a good disciple, right? But go back even further to the end of John chapter 6, verses 70 and 71. And I'm sticking in John just because that's where we've been reading this week. But this is all throughout the Gospels. You can see these different examples. In John chapter 6, Jesus has just shared this very tough teaching. And what happens? A bunch of people walk away. He says some things they don't like. They turn and they go away. And he turns to the 12, those who have been following him the closest, those who are with him day in and day out. And he goes, you going to run away too? Are you going to go off as well? And Peter responds, to where would we go? You are the holy God of Israel, the holy one of God. Where would we turn? And Jesus responds like this to that affirmation, verses 70 and 71. I chose the 12 of you, but one is a devil. How would you like to be that guy? He was speaking of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, one of the 12 who would later betray him. This is back at the beginning of the story. Do you mean that way back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, that Jesus already knows that Judas is not really invested in this whole discipleship journey? That's exactly what I mean. In fact, I was having a conversation with Jamie Bennett this morning. We were talking about this and wondering, did Jesus know even before he called him? 
even before he invited him, that he would betray him, that he was not the one. I think he probably did. I mean, Jesus is here. He's fully man, but yet he's fully God. He has the ability to look into man's heart, to see beyond the surface. He knew what was there. He knew what choices Judas was going to make. This didn't catch him by surprise. But think about it. How did Judas live his life? He said the right words. He behaved the right way. He kind of flew under the radar, so to speak, of the other 11. They didn't know this was going on. Even when he leaves that night from the upper room, they have no idea where he's going. They're assuming he's going to pay for food or something else. It tells us that in the story. But Judas was living a lie from the very beginning. He watched all the miracles. He heard all the teaching. He was there when Jesus fed the 5,000 with the few loaves and fishes. He was in the boat when Jesus came walking to them on the water. He saw all of these things, time in and time out. He got it all, and yet he still allowed his doubt and his own rationalizations to overpower his belief. In fact, you might say it like this. Judas was a guy that went to church, served on a team, participated in small group, even went fishing with the pastor. I mean, that's important, right? Nobody else seems to think that's as funny as I do. Wow. But he never really knew Jesus. Let that sink in in your mind for a moment. Everything that Judas experienced, witnessed, was a part of, was invited to, and he never really knew Jesus. See, I would dare suggest that there are some people in the church today that might fit that same description. And I'm not just talking about here at TBA, I'm talking about the church at large, though we're not immune. I really hope not, but if you're honest, maybe even some of you would admit that you're living the lie. You say the right things, you do the right things, you behave a certain way, you've learned the Christianese, you've learned how to perform at church and turn it on, but you're not sure where you stand with Jesus. See, we're called to hold one another accountable to our fruits, but the scary truth is We can't judge the heart of man. Scripture tells us that. We can't look beyond that. We can't judge the heart of man. We don't see beneath the surface the way Jesus does. Only you and Jesus know the condition of your own heart. But see, here's where I want you to look at the story with some different eyes today. Think about it this way. Jesus knew from the very beginning that Judas was going to betray him. He knew Judas was dishonest and yet he put him in charge of the money. I don't know about you guys, but I'm not putting somebody in charge of the money who's going to steal it. Not going to happen. That might cause war in our pastor team. If I thought somebody was being dishonest, I'm going after him. Jesus puts Judas in charge of the treasury, and he knows he's a thief. He's given him opportunity after opportunity to be involved. In fact, even in things that he knew he was going to fail but he's given him the chance to do the right thing, to turn it around, to repent, to come back to where he should be time and time again to make that right decision. But even when Judas kept walking down the wrong road, we're told that Jesus still loved him. We see that Jesus still invested in him. He kept inviting him to the journey, kept teaching him, kept encouraging him, kept demonstrating his love 
over and over and over until finally on this last night together with the disciples, before his death, Jesus stooped as a slave to wash the feet of his disciples, including Judas, who all through the Gospel of John, we've heard, was going to betray Jesus. Jesus knew in just a few moments he's going to go out, he's going to turn him over to the religious people who are corrupt, who are going to try him for something he hasn't done, who are going to wrongfully accuse him, who are going to beat him, who are going to take him to his death at the cross. Jesus knows that and he stoops anyway to wash the feet of Judas. He washes his disciples' feet, including Judas. And then he tells his disciples, which includes you and me, this is the example we should follow. This is the example you should follow. This is how we love one another. And I want to be really specific in this point here because we teach this love one another thing all the time. This is not new to you. You've heard it a bunch of times. And we even talk about, and Jesus says it a little later in this same passage in John, how important it is that we love one another, that the world will know that we are his disciples by the way we love one another, the way we love in the church, our brothers and sisters. I think we get that. That's important. Don't forget it. But I want you to look at the fact that Jesus also washed the feet of Judas. Judas wasn't a believer. He wasn't bought in, and yet Jesus loved him extravagantly and sacrificially too, just like the other disciples. He never quit loving Judas all the way to the very end, even when Judas betrayed him completely. And that bar has been set high. Jesus has called us to love like that, to love extravagantly, to love sacrificially. He's called us to humble ourselves until we're nothing. Humble ourselves to the point that we're nothing in our own eyes so that he can work through us, so that his love can pour through, through us, through our service, the very way we live. He's called us to be like him. And John 13 shows us that practically in the washing of feet, what that looks like as Jesus humbles himself as a slave. But I think Paul really summed it up about Jesus' whole life in Philippians 2. You're probably familiar with that passage. He says, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the spirit, are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and one purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. So what about you? Are you loving others well? Are you thinking of others as better than yourself? Are you taking an interest in others or only worrying about your own interests? And I want to be really, really clear here. 
because this can get confusing. Loving others well and putting their interests above your own does not mean that you'll always agree with them. Hear me clearly. Loving others well and putting their interests before your own doesn't mean you're always going to agree with their way of thinking. What it means is that you'll choose to set aside your pride, that you'll choose to humble yourself, that you'll serve them well, even when you don't see eye to eye on something. I would say especially when you don't see eye to eye on something. It means humbling yourself and giving up on being right so that you can walk in a spirit of unity. In fact, let me meddle for just a moment. And I'm gonna make it really practical for you. And I'm giving you fair warning that I'm meddling at this point, okay? Some of you hold a really, really deep conviction about the impact of COVID and about whether we should be wearing masks and social distancing or whether we should be going back to life as normal. And the truth of the matter is, for many of you, and I've talked to you, I've had these conversations, you've prayed about it, you've searched scripture, you've researched everywhere you know to look, you've pulled data, you've tried to make sure that everything was informed about the decisions you're making, and you're absolutely convinced that your perspective is right. And that's fine. I would never argue with you for a moment over what you feel is right, what your conviction is, where you sit on that. But here's what I would ask you. How are you responding to those in our church family who hold a deep conviction that's opposite of yours? How are you responding to those in the community who hold a deep conviction that is different than yours? Many of them have gone through the same journey. They've spent the same time in prayer, done the same research, done all the same things, trying to figure out, and the truth is, I don't know that any of us really know the answers. We can't even get good information these days. All we can do is seek God and ask him to speak to our hearts and lead us in a direction and then hold to those convictions the best we can, but the truth is none of that matters. None of it matters. How are you responding to them? Are you loving them and really listening to them with an open heart and open mind to know where they sit? Or are you nicely, or maybe even not so nicely, telling them how stupid they are for having that conviction? Are you searching for a way to walk in unity, even if you disagree? Or are you digging in to prove that you're right? See, it's interesting. I can only think of one thing that does more damage in the church than disunity, and it's gossip. And it's almost ironic that the two are almost always partnered hand in hand. Disunity and gossip, they tend to come together. Disunity in the church will destroy our witness for Christ with each other and with the world. Jesus said it himself. This is the passage I was talking about a while ago, verses 34 and 35 in chapter 13. So I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you, just as I stooped and washed your feet as a slave. Just as I have loved you, show your love for each other. This is what you should do. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. Remember, this is at the tail end of Jesus' example of that humble service. He just washed their feet. 
He just took that position of a slave and he says we have to love like he loves. Absolute humility, extravagantly, sacrificially. That's what unity looks like. That's what unity looks like, humble love and service. Jesus started this farewell speech, if you want to call it that, this time with his disciples, with this powerful example of service. And then he ended it by giving his life on the cross. He didn't just talk about it. He lived it out. He went to the cross and died for you and me to show us what this extravagant love looked like. There's no more extravagant offering of love that's ever been given than what Christ did for you and me. Band, you guys come on up. So as we come back to worship this morning, here's here's what I'm going to invite you to. I'm gonna invite you to come and receive communion this morning. And this is something we haven't done as a church family in a long time. And for a lot of reasons around COVID and other things, we've been very careful about it. But you have two options. And the first thing I want you to hear, and I know many of you in this service probably aren't too concerned because this is the no mask service and and you already come in and interact differently and that's okay. But you have two options. We have some disposable communion elements that are over here at Next Steps. So if you want to have something that you know is prepackaged, nobody's touched, there are no germs on it, it's all yours. If you would like to come and receive communion in a similar fashion as what we've typically done, we have three stations set up at the front, but it is still a little different than what we've typically done. We have some long wooden trays that have the matzo crackers all spread out that we're going to use so that hopefully there's not a ton of grubby hands. There are some hand sanitizers here across the front and around the room. I would encourage you to use those before you come and get communion. Instead of dipping that in a common glass like we typically have done, there are small glasses, plastic disposable cups that you're just going to take with you so you can go back to your seat or you can stand up here in the front with your family, however you want to do it, and you can receive the elements simply by taking the cracker and then drinking the juice. And you can do that on your own time frame. But before you come and do that, The last thing I want to do this morning is I want to share a story with you. And this is a story that I stole from Facebook. Um, And it's from a dear friend in our church. And I got her permission before I shared this. Some of you may have already read it, so that's okay. Um, But listen to it again. There were just some lines in it that grabbed me. And I'm typically, like the last two or three years, I've been off of Facebook. I try to stay off of it. But in all this COVID stuff, I've been back on more often because it's an easy way to communicate with people. And I came across this story and it just floored me and I thought, I've got to share this Sunday morning. So just think about this. I'm reading the story, but this is her story. So keep that in mind. She says, I had to apologize again. I hate it when this happens, but unfortunately, I'm wired prideful. I even hate typing that word. Most days it's easy to fight against, but there are times when it comes out like word vomit. This protection of myself Somehow my need to defend myself trumps all reason. Let me explain. Today I heard the recycling person come through. I looked out the window and watched the bin getting lifted and shook with the grabber arm. And I don't know why I'm still fascinated with this as as an adult, but alas, it doesn't get old to me. This time a couple of boxes fell out during the process. I saw the door swing open and the man get out. And within seconds, he must have seen me in the window because he started making some large gestures toward me, telling me not to do something. I opened the window and asked what he said, but realized he couldn't hear me. I could start to feel the adrenaline then. Something kicked in and thoughts started racing. I didn't do anything wrong. Why is he yelling at me? Why is he so upset? And the worst one, who does he think he is yelling at me for items falling out of the recycling bin? Within seconds, I was outside facing my accuser. 
What's wrong, I said, not really asking. With large hand gestures, he told me that I shouldn't be putting weeds from my neighbors that have been lying there for two days in the bin. Whoa, I didn't put that in the bin. That's been on the street. He then pointed to a little sock that must have fallen out of the box. And he jumps back in the cab and tells me that he could tag it and find me if he wanted to. I then responded with something that everyone loves to hear. Whoa, calm down. I mean, I didn't put that sock in there. I don't know who did, thinking maybe it was one of the boys. I don't really know. Could have been. Oh, I'm calm. I'm fine, he yells back and slams his door, seething with anger. My heart was pounding as I turned to walk back inside. I was angry, and more than that, I felt justified. It was pride. But I didn't realize it for about 20 minutes because I was too busy replaying the situation in my head and coming, back up, coming up with even better comebacks. It was quite amazing. In those 20 minutes, every bully in my past was brought back to my mind. And trust me, I've had a lot of interesting encounters. And you know what replaying those encounters did for me? More justification. And then that still small voice. It's less of a conversation now, but more of a get up and go immediately. Really, without even thinking or planning, I ran outside. Right around the corner, he came at that same time. I waved my arms and he stopped. I went around and he opened his door and I said, I'm sorry. I'm so, so sorry. I grabbed his hand and squeezed it. Please forgive me. Me too, he smiled back at me. Y'all, I tear up writing this because every time I think I've come so far, something like this happens and I realize I am so broken. And not only that, but he is my redeemer. He gently reminds me that it's very hard to wash someone's feet when you're spitting in their face. I want to read that again. That grabbed me this week. It's hard to wash somebody's feet when you're spitting in their face. So I will keep apologizing and testifying about how he is and I am not. And she finished the post with the hashtag, go lower still. And I think that's a phrase that we probably could learn to hold on to. Go lower still. No matter how much we think we've humbled ourselves, we need to humble ourselves more. I'm not sure if he said it in this service, but in first service, Brian used the phrase humiliated as he talked about humbling ourselves. We need to be humiliated before others so that Christ can work through us the way he wants to. So there's nothing of us left, none of our pride, none of our ego, none of our junk, but that we're in a place that God can use us. Jesus took the position of the lowest of the low slaves to wash his disciples' feet, including Judas. And he said, this is the model that you need to follow. This is how you love extravagantly. This is how you love sacrificially. And then he went on to give his life for me and you.